once said he taught only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. And so when we study the Buddha's Dharma, that's what we're studying, trying to understand suffering and how to put an end to it. He said there are four truths you have to know about suffering. In fact, that was his first teaching. In other words, know what suffering is, what its cause is. Know that you can put an end to suffering and then how to do it. So that's what we're doing right right now, learning how to put an end to suffering. We practice meditation, we're practicing part of the path. Right concentration, right mindfulness, right concentration. So what we're doing right now is a noble truth. Remind yourself of that. And when you find pain and suffering coming up in the practice, that's a noble truth as well. Something really worthy of respect. How do you respect suffering? We give it some space. But you also know that you can't just jump right in and push it away. If you're going to put an end to it, you have to do it systematically. And so our system is to give the mind a place to settle down. Once you understand what we're doing here, try to bring the mind into the present moment and develop the good qualities you're going to need in order to deal with the suffering. You find that craving and ignorance are actually part of the problem, so we try to get rid of those. Whereas qualities like mindfulness, alertness, concentration, discernment, those are the things that are going to help us comprehend suffering. So we try to strengthen those as much as we can. Once those are strong, then we can really look into the issue of why the mind is creating unnecessary suffering for itself. So our first issue is to develop mindfulness and concentration. Mindfulness is the ability to keep something in mind. Keep the breath in mind, or if you have a meditation word, you can keep the meditation word in mind, like butto. Or if you want to visualize something, you can visualize the bones in your body. It's something that's right here, right now. Because where does suffering happen? It happens right here, right now. Where is it going to be cured? It's going to be cured right here, right now. So you want to get used to being right here, right now. Not running off after your thoughts in other directions. Actually, Awareness is always right here, right now. It's a question of where its focus goes. Sometimes the focus goes on thought constructs. You think about this, you think about home, you think about school, you think about work. Your awareness is still here, but the focus is off someplace else. What you want to do is bring your focus back to your awareness. What you've got going right here, right now. You've got the breath coming in, going out, and you've got the mind commenting on it. So. Try to keep those things together. If the mind is going to start commenting on other things, don't pay any attention to it. 
bring it right back here, right now. Try to be alert to what's going on. You can't be complacent because the mind has a tendency, it's old habit to keep running off, running off, running off. And for the most part, we're willing to run along with it. But now we're going to change the situation. If thoughts run off, we don't have to go running after them. Stay right here with your basic awareness of the breath coming in, the breath going out. This develops two of the main qualities that are important for developing a real foundation of mindfulness, or a really solid frame of reference, mindfulness and alertness. The third quality is ardency. In other words, you want to be ardent in your mindfulness and ardent in your alertness. Ardent in your mindfulness means that you don't want to leave any gaps. Just keep reminding yourself of the breath over and over and over again. If you're working with a meditation word Buddha, just think Buddha, Buddha, don't let there be any gaps. If you catch yourself slipping off, bring it, your mind right back. Remind yourself, you've got to be here with the breath. You're here because there's work to be done. If you don't do the work now, when is it going to get done? And if you don't do the work, who's going to do it? Nobody can do it for you. So keep coming back, coming back, coming back as quickly as you can. Get to the point where you can catch the mind before it goes. When it seems to be leaning out after something. When you catch, catch it leaning out, we'll just bring it back, set it up straight again. Don't wait until it's already jumped over to the next thought or the next object. That's when you can say you're really ardent in your mindfulness. Ardent in your alertness means being very sensitive to what's going on, particularly when you're with a breath. Try to be really sensitive to the breath coming in, going out. How does it feel? How does it feel in different parts of the body? Because there are lots of parts of the body that we tend to block out of our awareness. We're trying to open up those different parts of the body. How does the breathing feel in your head? How does the breathing feel in your chest? How does it feel in your abdomen, your legs, your arms, your fingers, your toes? Remember, breathing is a whole body process. It engages the entire nervous system. Or it should. Sometimes it gets blocked. When it gets blocked, then it's a cause for diseases to slip in. So try to keep the breath energy open all the way down to the body. The more sensitive you can be to any of the slightest bit of discomfort in the breath, the better. With the slight bit of discomfort, you can change things. Change the rhythm of your breathing, change the depth of your breathing. Whether it's narrow or broad, heavy or light, there's lots of ways you can adjust the breath. We've got all these adjustments on this MP3 recorder. Well, your breath has a lot more way of, of being adjusted. So there's a lot to play with. And the word play here is important. If the present moment gets boring, you're not going to stay here. But realize there's a lot you can do here. Fool around with the dials. See what kind of breath sensations you really like to emphasize. And then notice what works and what doesn't work. In other words, some things may feel good for a while, but after a while they begin to wear on you, so you've got to change. 
find a rhythm that feels good for as long as possible. Or if you suddenly find that the body's needs change, change the breath as quickly as you can. This is all an aspect of being ardently alert. When you're ardently mindful and ardently alert, these qualities grow. It's like exercising. You push yourself a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And you find that the good things you want to have developed in the mind start growing. The qualities of mindfulness and alertness turn into the basic elements of right concentration, directed thought and evaluation, where you keep your mind focused on an object and you're very careful and very clear about how it feels, what you can do with that sensation. In other words, there's a good breath sensation in one part of the body, you can spread it. Think of it running down the whole nervous system. Think of all the different nerves in your body, and they can have that same feeling tone. Once everything opens up inside like that, then allow it to stay that way. Show some respect for your concentration. After all, concentration is a noble truth. It's the heart of the path. Once your concentration is solid, then you can look at the issue of why there's suffering in the mind. In other words, you come at it with respect. You realize this is a very complicated issue. It's going to require a lot of concentration, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of discernment in order to understand it. So you've prepared yourself to really look into suffering. Because there's there are two kinds of dukkha, or suffering. One is just the natural way things are. You've got a body, and there's going to be pain in your body. There's going to be illness, aging, death someday. Those are things you can't prevent. But there's another kind of suffering, which you cause through your own craving. You have to be clear on the distinction between the two. Because that's the kind of suffering you can change, you can put an end to. And when you put an end to that, then the suffering or the stress of having a body doesn't impinge on the mind. The stress of all your thoughts and feelings and other mental activity, that won't impinge on the mind either. So you're going to be very careful about looking at what you're doing that's adding unnecessary stress to the present moment. That's the basic question. And the, the real suffering comes down to what the Buddha calls clinging. You hold on to things and hoping you're going to get happiness out of them, and they don't have happiness to give you. They may give you some pleasure, but it's not long-lasting. And if you hope that your true and deepest happiness depends on those things, you're setting yourself up for a fall. So instead, you try to depend on your concentration, depend on your mindfulness. So it can help develop discernment. That helps you see through these things, understanding the things that you're latching onto. You can't depend on them for permanent happiness. 
but you can use them as tools. You can use them as utensils for understanding the mind, for developing more and more solid bases inside in terms of the path. So ultimately your discernment gets so clear that it opens up to something that's very different inside. It's like a different dimension. A dimension where nothing changes, nothing comes, nothing goes, but there's awareness. You're aware of that dimension, and you realize that in that dimension there's no stress, there's no suffering. It's right here. here. It can be touched here in the present moment, but the present moment is covering it up because we're doing so many things in the present moment. And so what we're doing as we meditate is stripping away all the excess doing we're right here. It's causing us stress, it's causing us suffering, the kind of suffering that comes from craving and ignorance. You can undo it not by ordering yourself to do it, but by looking at the things you crave and realizing that they're not worth craving. Looking at the things you're ignorant about and learning to see them more and more clearly. It's by cutting through the craving and cutting through the ignorance that the Buddha said you can put an end to suffering. And you come to realize that what the Buddha taught was true. There really is an end to suffering. There is this dimension of experience where there is no suffering at all. So as we're practicing here, remind yourself, this is why the Buddha taught, taught us to meditate. It's to understand suffering and to understand how to put an end to it. Other issues, he said, are beside the point. And many times you find that other issues will come up in your meditation. You may start getting intuitions of this or visions of that. But that's not what the meditation is for. That's not why the Buddha was teaching. He was teaching two things, suffering and the end of suffering. And if we keep our sight set on those two things as we meditate, then we find that we get the best possible results. After all, the Buddha saw that when you concentrate the mind, you can use it for all kinds of things, but the absolute best thing you can use it for is this question, putting an end to suffering. Because when there's an end to suffering, there are no more issues in life. Nothing else is a problem. So by focusing on this one issue, he takes care of everything else. Every now and then you read somebody writing a piece on basically taking the Buddha to task on the first of the three characteristics. The thrust of the piece usually is what's wrong with change. Change is a good thing. If it weren't for change, we wouldn't have happiness. There'd be no art in the world. Music, literature, All the things that make life enjoyable, they say, come from change. So what's wrong with it? But you have to look at change in context. That's what those four Dharma summaries are about. The 
chant we chanted just now, the four comments that Ratabala made to the king, Kauravya, to explain why he ordained. And it's interesting to notice how he explains those four summaries, because they tie into both the teaching on inconstancy, stress, and not-self, and also into the simple fact of aging, illness, and death. The first of the summaries has to do with inconstancy. The world is swept away. It does not endure. Which again, on its own, may not be a bad thing. Certain things getting swept away would not be bad for the world. But then he illustrates it with aging. King Guravya, when he was young, he was strong, but now he's 80 years old. He says, even just, I think I'll put my foot one place and end up putting it someplace else. Don't have even that much control when age when aging comes. Change is nice when it's well handled, but when you think of all, say, the beautiful music in the world, think of all the lousy music in the world. And people actually make an effort to make to write lousy music. Not that they intended to be lousy, but it's very difficult to write good music. Very difficult to write good art literature. If change were a good thing, it would, you'd think it would be easy to write good art, good literature, draw good paintings, but it's hard, which shows that it takes an awful lot of skill to make change happy. And even people who are very skilled at it, how do they end up? Well, they end up getting older, and as they get older, all kinds of indignities come to them. The body can't function. When the body can't function, they can't do things for people the way they used to. And the they get less and less control over themselves, less and less control over their relationships. And it's a pretty sad state of affairs. That kind of change is inevitable. It's built into the way things are. You know, think about it, the change that we try to create through art and literature and music goes against the way things are. Things have a nice beginning, they build up a little tension, but then it's nicely released at the end. And there's a sense of completion, a sense of coming to a satisfying goal. But life isn't like that. It's the end of life, everything just falls apart as we get older and older. And that moves into the next insight, the next Dharma summary. The world offers no shelter, there's no one in charge. And he illustrates this with the fact of illness. He asks the king, do you have a recurring illness? And the king says, yes, I have a wind illness, which in those days meant sharp shooting pains go through the body. And he says, some people... All of his courtiers and his relatives hang around and say, maybe he might die now, maybe he might die now. And then Ratabala asks the king, can you ask those friends and courtiers and relatives who are hanging around, could you please share out some of this pain? The king says, no, not even a king can ask other people to share out his, the pain that comes with illness. 
This illustrates the second of the three characteristics, the stress and suffering that come along with change. The natural change of the body. And finally, the third characteristic, not self. The world has nothing of its own. One has to pass on, leaving everything behind. The king has lots of wealth all stored up, and of course he has a strong sense that it is his own wealth. But then when he dies, he can't take it with him. He's got to leave it behind. That's the ultimate not-self teaching. Even your body, your feelings, your perceptions, your thought constructs, your consciousness, you can't take those with you either. It's interesting to think, maybe those the Buddha's teachings on the three characteristics came from the simple fact of aging, illness, and death. Aging, inconstancy, illness, stress, and suffering, death, not self. The fourth Dharma summary is what ties it all up and shows why those three characteristics are so threatening. The world is insufficient, insatiable, a slave to craving. There's never enough, no matter what you create in this world. There's never a sense of true completion. Even the completion, sense of completion that comes at the end of a piece of nice music, the end of a good novel, a good book. It's a false sense of completion. There's never really a sense that that settles all your problems in life, that settles all the issues in life. There's nothing more to do. There's a lot more to do. You keep looking for other works of art, other music, to create that sense of completion, but it just doesn't happen. Rantabala illustrates this with asking the king, suppose someone were to come to you, and even though you already are reigning over a very prosperous country here, someone were to say, you know, there's a country over to the east with lots of wealth, but it's, in terms of military strength, that's weak enough that you could, you could conquer it, given the forces you have. Would you do it? And the king says, of course. Suppose someone were to come from the west, the same news, well, I'll conquer the kingdom of the west. The north, the south. Conquer to the kingdoms to the north and south. It's just unending. What if someone to come over, say there's a country on the other side of the ocean? Well, the king would send his forces there too. It's not the case that by giving in to your desires, giving in to your cravings, you finally satisfy them. They just make you more and more hungry. It becomes more and more habitual. Once there's a craving, once there's a desire, you've got to satisfy it. And when you think of how things are in constant stressful and not self, and how you yourself are subject to aging, illness, and death, there's no end to it all. There's never a point of satisfaction. Even death doesn't put an end to things. As the Buddha said, it's we travel on through the craving. In the same way that wind can carry a flame from one burning house to another burning house, set that one on fire. He says, craving carries us over from one lifetime to the next. What's interesting is that the Buddha said all this inconstancy, stress, and not-self is rooted in desire. And yet, because of the desire, we're never satisfied. It's through our lack of satisfaction that we want this and want that. And if the things that we create in order to f fill up that lack never really give satisfaction, that's the ordinary way of the world. 
no matter how good the change gets, no matter how skilled you are at riding the waves of change, it's never enough. That's why the Buddha tells us, advises us to look elsewhere for true happiness. And what he does is he takes that craving and he tries to manage it wisely. In other words, the first craving basically wants us to get as much happiness as possible, as quickly as possible, with as little effort as possible. But to develop discernment, he says, you take that desire for happiness and you adjust it a bit. What would true happiness, what could we do to give rise to true happiness, long-lasting happiness, a happiness that wouldn't change? And this way you take your desire, and you take the possibility of change, and you turn it into a path that leads beyond, that finally does lead to a point of completion, a point of total satisfaction, a total, as many of the Thai Johns call it, the, the land of enough. That's what we're doing as we're practicing here, as we're trying to take that craving and turn it into something wise. Use it wisely. This desire, which is at the root of all things. And the Buddha said, the root of all dharmas. Dharmas here meaning just any phenomenon of any kind. But it can also mean what we think of dharma with a capital D. The dharma that leads us out, the dharma practice. There has to be a desire there. If you're going to walk across the room, you've got to have a desire to get to the other side. It's the question is how to use that desire in a skillful way. Walking across the room is not a big big issue, but with the practice, the whole issue of desire in the practice is a lot more subtle, a lot more intricate. We want the desire that impels us along the path, but we don't want it to be so much that it gets in the way. But still, remember, there's got to be that desire. And it's focused on this one issue. What can we do that gives rise to long-lasting happiness? and ultimately a happiness that doesn't change at all. That's what we're working on here. Wherever we may be in the practice right now, that's the general direction and where we're heading. That's the question that underlies everything. So look at what you're doing. In terms of your, thought, in terms of your thoughts, your words, your deeds, not only while you're sitting here meditating, but in the whole course of the day. What habits do you have that get in the way of long-lasting happiness? Your habits in terms of dealing with yourself, your habits in terms of dealing with other people, how you manage the day, how you devote your time, the intensity with which you focus and what you're doing. All of this is a part of the practice. Things that you can look at. This is an important part of the Buddhist teachings that everything he teach us. There's things that we can actually look at. He was not a, a mystifier. Didn't make anything into a big mystery. That everything you need to know is right in front of your eyes. The problem is that you're looking past it. Look very carefully at your intentions. I was reading today a, a blurb for a book on Buddhist ethics. If someone was proposing that the precepts are too simple-minded because our our actions have so many ramifications that it just 
opens you up to this big world of mystery. Someone is taking the, the Buddha's effort to remove mystery from our lives and put it back in. So if you look really carefully at your intentions, you can see whether they're skillful or not by the metal qualities that underlie them. And you stay right there and act on that insight. Is there anger motivating your thoughts, words, and deeds? Is there greed? Is there delusion? Keep your focus right here. And you find that the process of change in your life becomes something you can manage more and more skillfully. Don't lose sight of what's right here. Because everything you need to know in order to attain, attain true awakening, in order to discover that happiness which is beyond change. It's right here in your body and mind. The process of fabrication, physical, verbal, metal, it's all right here, especially right here when you're sitting here with your mind on the breath, thinking about and evaluating the breath. All the factors you're going to need to know are right here, and yet we tend to look past them. So try to keep your focus right here. And it's the, the irony of it all is that the more right here you are in your focus, the longer term the, the happiness that comes from your actions. As you get more and more skillful at this one point, it has ramifications that go out in all directions. So the process of change is something that's happening right here. Learn to master it right here. And so instead of becoming the change that leads to more stress and suffering, that leads to more separation, that leads to greater sense of dissatisfaction, you turn it around. You take that craving and you tame it by focusing it right here. And the more right here you are, the longer term the good results that come. You give up the, the guesswork and the speculation. And you focus on things that you can really know right here, right now. That's why the Buddhist teachings are for everybody. Think about it, the, the great Ajahns in Thailand. Most of them came from peasant families. That was back in the days when the Thai government was very proud of what it was doing to Buddhism. It was straightening everything out starting from the top down. And it didn't have nearly the effect, long-term effect, that the actions of a few peasant sons did, out there in the boondocks, out there in the woods, focusing on things that they could know for themselves, right there in their own thoughts, words, and deeds. Those are the ones who have made the most, had the biggest impact, the most long-term and deepest impact on keeping the Dharma alive, not only in Thailand but around the world. So the way the whole process of change and causality is built in this world, 
the more careful you are about what you do and say and think in the immediate present, the better the long-term results are going to be. Instead of thinking of trying to satisfy our desires for happiness in the world of change, we take that world of change and we turn it to the changeless. Look for that which is unchanging right here, right now. So we can finally work through that whole issue of craving. Take it apart. Why is there craving for this? What can be done to channel it properly? What can be done finally to put it to an end? When there is a sense of enough. That's what the teachings on the three characteristics are about. That's why the Buddha keeps reminding us about aging, illness, and death. Because otherwise we tend to get contented with this, that, and the other thing. And then this seems to be okay, that seems to be okay, this is good enough in the practice. But that fourth summer of the Dharma, it's never enough until you get to the tactless. That's the only place where there's a true sense of enough. That's where the craving finally disbands. So this is why we keep chanting these passages again and again and again about aging, illness, and death, and separation. The world is swept away, does not endure, offers no shelter, there's no one in charge, has nothing of its own, one has to pass on, leaving everything behind. It's insufficient, insatiable, slave to craving. All sounds pretty negative, but it has a positive import to remind us not to settle for less than the best. Instead of being depressing, these teachings are liberating. Reminds us not to look in the wrong place. Not to weigh ourselves down with the expectations that can never really lead to true happiness at all. So even though the teachings may sound negative, they have a very positive import. Dharma has us start right where we are. But for most of us, the problem is that we're not there. We're focused someplace else. We're like a lens in a camera. It's located inside the camera, but it's not focused inside the camera. It's focused way outside. And so the first step in the practice is to get as close to inside as you can, to bring that focal point back in, right where you are. And in fact, that's not just the start of the practice. As we get further and further into the practice, you find yourself focusing in more and more precisely, closer and closer into where you are, right in the present moment. And you find that where you are is in what you're doing. This is so much of our sense of who we are. A sense of ease or dis-ease in the present moment comes from our sense of knowing or not knowing what to do in the present moment. 
either in dangerous situations or just plain old everyday situations where we're at loose ends or when we're bored. You notice there's a real sense of discomfort there, even more so when you're feeling the sense in a position of danger and you don't know how to react. And for many people, that's too trivial an issue to deal with. I think that when you come to spiritual practice, you should deal in larger issues, bigger issues. How does life begin? Where is it going? That's like taking your camera lens and focusing it way outside again. You're lost in areas where you're really not there. Areas that you don't have any direct experience of. And it all comes down to inference and deduction. The Buddha realized, though, that that kind of emphasis really can lead you astray. He said, if you really want to see what's going on in life, what's important in life, look at what you're doing right now. So the meditation brings us to that doing. What are we doing right now? The Buddha says there are actually three aspects to what we're doing at any one particular time. There's the physical doing, which, if nothing else is happening, at least you're breathing. So that's where we take the breath as our focal point. And then there's speech, the things that we say. And regardless of the content of what we're saying, there are two kinds of thinking that go into speech. And one is focusing your speaking. One is focusing your mind on a particular topic, and then the second one is coming up with a comment on the topic. It's called directed thought and evaluation. So what you do is you take that directed thought and you bring it to the breath, and then you evaluate the breath. And then there's mental fabrication, feelings of pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain, and then the labels we put on them. So you bring that into the equation. When you're focusing on the breath, when you're directing the thought and evaluating, notice the sense of the feelings that come along with the breathing. Try to keep all these things together. And you find that you're getting closer and closer to where you are. Allow yourself to get absorbed in these processes, because it's in the doing that we are in these processes. That's where we'll find what's going on. That's where we'll find what the big issues in life are, why there is that sense of disease when you don't know what to do. Or when you're unsure about what you're doing. Look into that. But to simplify matters, we say, okay, stay with the breath. Know that that's all you have to do right here, right now. And then direct your thought to the breathing and evaluate the breathing. How does it feel? What kind of feelings come along with the breath? That's all you have to know. This is bringing your focal point inside. Because what you'll find ultimately is that in all of these activities, there's an element of intention. And as we get more and more involved in these processes, you see that element more clearly. That's what we're trying to get catch sight of, because that element of intention is what lies at the basis of all our experience of the present moment. But it takes lots 
peeling through lots and lots of layers. The mind is like an onion. There are many layers of experience here before we get to that point in the in the onion, way down deep in the onion. But know that everything is heading in this direction, more and more inward, more and more being right here, right where you are, right with what you're doing. You have a strong sense of the importance of this practice. If you want to understand the Buddhist Dharma, you have to establish yourself at this point, because it's from this point that all the other teachings make sense. You can read about them in books, and you can analyze them in the abstract. But they show their real value when you're looking at the teachings from the point of view of a mind centered in the breath, mind centered in the body, right here, right now, in and of itself. This in and of itself is difficult. Just being with the breath and the body, we have to come through many layers of associations that we have around our body. We may decide that, we may have the feeling that our body is something we like, something we don't like. Other people like it, other people don't like it. And when we run against those layers of association, many times they repel us. We bounce back out. So learn just to be with the body in and of itself. What, how do you experience the body right now? You've got the breath coming in, going out. You have your sense of the presence of the body, which when you get to know it really carefully, you discover is an aspect of the breath element as well. There's a breath energy flowing through the body that allows you to know that you've got, say, your right arm over on the right, the left arm over on the left, your legs here, your head there. Basic energy running through the nerves, running through the blood vessels is what lets you know these things are there. And it's associated with the breathing. And one of the things you'll be learning as you focus more and more on the breath, get more and more absorbed in the breathing, is exactly how these things are related. So immerse yourself in this sense of the body, just right here, right now, without any of the other associations, past or future, good or bad just what you've got right here. And you'll find, of course, the mind keeps slipping off this frame of reference, going to other ones that you're more familiar with. So be patient but firm with it. Just keep coming back. What is it like to have a body right here, right now? What is it like to be aware right here, right now? Just be with that direct perception. The more consistently you can stay with this immediate sense of being right here, right now. The more you see is going on right here, right now. It's not just a passive process where you're watching. You're actually involved in the shaping of the right here, right now. That's what you're going to be looking for. And you find that this shaping takes place on many, many levels. Again, it's like that onion. You peel through one layer and you've got another one. Peel through that, you've got others. But the reward as you go through the layers is that the mind gets a greater and greater sense of stability. It really is at home in the present. As you've created a sense of ease that goes along with being here. Your sense of ease is important because many times the insights that come as you peel away the layers of the present moment have to do with ways you've been dishonest with yourself, 
ways you've decided to do things that you really know are not right, but you go ahead and do them anyhow. In other words, things you don't like to see in your own mind. And again, there's a natural tendency to run away from those realizations. But if you they come up in the context of a sense of well-being, a sense of ease, a sense of stability here in the present moment, they're not threatening. But you're able to dissociate yourself from them. You say, I don't want to go there anymore, and I don't have to. Because you've got this sense of stability, the sense of being at home with yourself. So many times people have very little of that sense. You put them in a doctor's office and you don't give them a magazine, they just have to sit there for a while. You find they get very much ill at ease. That's not for fear of what the doctor's going to do, simply that they've got all that empty time. And it was one of the Buddha's insights to realize that this is something that's worth looking into. Why is it we don't feel at home in the present moment? What's the sense of suffering? What's the sense of stress that's there? Suffering may seem to be too strong a word, but there's an element of dis-ease. And he took that as his first noble truth. You don't have to wait for intense pain. Just that simple sense of dis-ease in the present moment. Why should that be? You dig down into that. Now it's best to dig down when you have a sense of stability, the mind well-focused in the present moment, the mind at home in the present moment, and see that even then there may be a sense of disease. You want to dig into that. So you're coming from a position of strength, so that you're not going to be afraid or feel threatened by any of the insights that come up. you're doing is trying to approach the Dharma the way the Buddha approached it. In other words, starting from right here, right now, and then working out and working in. So instead of trying to understand the Dharma from the outside, it comes from this perspective of the inside, this focused perspective right here, where you finally get the camera lens to focus on itself. So you begin to notice the subtle movements of the mind. This big hunk of experience that we have in the present moment begins to sort itself out. You can see which parts of the experience correspond to the different aggregates, which part, which parts of the experience are form, which ones are the feelings of pleasure and pain, pleasure and pain. And when you learn to separate those two out from each other, in other words, separate the breath from the feelings that arise from the breath begin to see how slippery feelings are. You try to pin them down with your perceptions. This is a feeling of pain. Whoops, which have changed into something else. And it came back again. This must be a feeling of pleasure. Well, that can slip into something else, too. It's like eels running around your body. And you've posted post-it notes on this eel and that, and of course the eel has gone by the time you posted it. And then there are the thought fabrications, the element of intention that underlies all of this experience. And the consciousness, these are actually separate things. When you get really, really still, you can see that they're separate. Not that you have to go and 
taking them apart from the outside. It's allowing the mind to settle here in the present moment and watch very carefully so you can begin to see movements here, movements there. The more still your mind is, the more constant it is, the easier it is to see inconstancy, impermanence, stress. And realizing that you wouldn't want to identify with those things. This is where the three characteristics all come together. Someone once said that you really understand inconstancy only when you see that it's the same thing as stress. And that stress is the same thing as not-self. The three are not separate things. They're all aspects of one thing. And you see them that way when the mind is still. As you're trying to settle down into the present moment. If you see something is inconstant and undependable, you don't want to settle down there. Why? Because it would be unstable. That instability is what lies at the essence of stress. And if you're not settling down there, if you're not associating with it, well, there's that sense of not-self. You begin to dissociate yourself from these things. You move into deeper and deeper levels of your onion, peeling away layer after layer. As you get closer and closer to this sense of this pure awareness in the present moment, you're trying to ferret out the intentions that still surround that, still buzz around it. Really interesting insights come in when you actually see the intentions in the act, and you don't associate with them. What usually happens, though, is you replace one intention with another one. The skill comes when you learn how not to get involved in any intention of any kind, even the intention to stop the intentions, or the intention not to associate. That has to drop away as well. That's subtle work, but that's the direction we're heading. what we're doing as we practice, as we're starting where we are, and then we dig deeper and deeper into where we are. And the Buddha's insight was when you dig in this way, the, the implications, the ramifications spread throughout your whole experience of the cosmos. So it originally may seem like a trivial issue. Why is there a sense of dis-ease in the present moment? When you really start taking it apart, you find that the ramifications spread in all directions. This is what's so amazing about the Buddhist teachings, that instead of trying to track things out to the beginning of time, or the end of time, or the beginning of the world, or the end of the world, he turns around and just looks right here, what you've got right here, takes that apart. So this is why we try to bring the mind to the present moment, why we try to keep her, what all this activity and the practice is all about. use thinking in order to get to a point that's beyond thinking. Think about the breath. Evaluate the breath. In other words, make use of what you've got, but learn to turn it to a new use. Instead of keeping your focal point way outside, you use your thinking, you use your sensitivities in the present moment to bring things further in, further in, closer, closer. Because the really important issues lie right here. The world tells us the important things or someplace else. You have to study history to understand some things. You have to know about politics to understand other things. You have to watch the news. You have to read books. All things, all of which are ways of getting your attention further and further away. 
areas of uncertainty. This is probably one of the curses of modern life, is that we're so much tuned in to what's going on all over the world. That leaves us more and more uncertain all the time. Which news sources are you going to trust? When you have an action, exactly how far do its ramifications go? Can you ever really know? Because so, so many of these things are hidden. When you buy something, exactly who's been involved in the process of making that thing? Many times it requires muckraking journalism to find out exactly where our clothing comes from. Something as simple as that, where our food comes from. The wood that went into this building, where does that come from? What were the working conditions like? All kinds of things that you just can't know. From the point of view of the Dharma, that just leaves you in ignorance. No matter how much you trace things out in that direction, just have more and more questions. The Buddha says, focus on things where you really can know. You know the breath is coming in. You know the breath is going out. As you get more and more familiar with the mind, you get more, you get clearer and clearer about what your intentions are. You see the qualities of the mind that lie behind them, and you know better and better which kinds of intentions are skillful and which ones are unskillful. He says, focus right here. The whole issue of morality as it pertains to the practice is focused on things that you can know, the quality of your intention, the quality of the motivations behind the intention. That's something you can know, something you can control. And for the purpose of training the mind, that's all you have to know. Is that you can trust in the laws of human action, that if the quality of your intention is good, the results are going to be good. However, they work themselves out in the ramifications of the world around you. He said, if you try to trace the results of your actions, you go crazy. But if you stay with the source of your actions, stay with the intention and the perceptions that lie behind it, your focus is at the right place for the sake of training the mind, for the sake of putting an end to suffering. The whole purpose of the Buddhist teachings was to take away the mystery of our experience by focusing our attention on what's right before our eyes. What's right, or to continue the analogy of the camera, what's right in our eyes, what's right in that lens. Focus the lens further and further until you've got the focal point inside. And you find that everything you need to know is right there. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.